She was her sister's bowling partner, her granddaughter's primary caretaker, and she delivered the Casper Star. Davida Peterson is the quintessential small-town Wyoming woman that we all know. I'm Renee Nelson, and this is Unsolved Wyoming. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Unsolved Wyoming. This is a big episode because it's the first time that I tackle an unsolved homicide. And this case is a cold case happening in 1999. Join me as I talk to Linda Beauchamp about her sister, Davida, and the nightmare that unfolded the evening before Mother's Day. And be sure to stay tuned because I have DCI updates with Desiree Tinoco. Linda, thank you for joining us on Unsolved Wyoming today. I really appreciate you taking your time. Can you tell us who you are and how you are related to Davida Peterson? I'm Linda Peterson Beauchamp. I'm Davida's older sister. Out of seven of us, she was the middle one. Right. And and you uh, can you tell us where you and your family are originally from? From Rock Springs, Wyoming. So Rock Springs, Wyoming is your hometown then? Yes, it is. It's, it's our home. Yeah, and, and I understand that you have recently moved, you know, in your retirement. How do you still have family that lives in Rock Springs? Yes, I still have my kids there. My older sister and then the sister right under Davida moved down here when in two years ago when I got sick oh, in June. Okay. So it'll be two years in June when they moved down here to be with me. Oh, goodness. Well, that's, gosh, that's, it's so incredible to hear about, you know, big families and that you all support each other and and love on each other that way. Oh, yeah. Well, and I guess that brings me to my next question. What was um, the dynamic between you and Davida? Well, we bowled together. We did a lot of things together. If she was having issues with something or needed some advice or anything, she always called me. And it seemed like all the family did the same thing, all the other girls and and the boy. But they were she'd call me mostly because of her kids and she had a lot of issue with her children. So but we had a good relationship. One thing, mm-hmm. and I'll m- mention this for listeners, this is actually our second time recording this interview because there was a technical mishap. But one of the things that you mentioned yesterday in your interview was that you felt very protective over Davida. Yes, I did. And when we got down to the hospital after the night, the night she was shot, I was in the motel with my mom, and I just started crying. Mom and asking me what the matter. And I said, "Well, Mom, I said I'm so sorry. I wasn't there to protect her this time." I said I could have been, but I didn't stop. So we can go into that because I think listeners would like to hear kind of the chain of events that happened, especially that night where you were planning on stopping to see Davida while she was working, but decided not to. Can you tell us about the day that Davida was shot? Yep. It was May 8th, the evening before Mother's Day. And my 
a second daughter and her husband had taken me to the Sands Cafe, which was right across the street from it, for dinner. And then I seen that uh, Randy, her ex-husband's truck, was there. And I told the kids, I said, well, let's not stop. I said, they're probably talking about trying to get back together. So that was about 10 after 8. So I went back home. And about 20 after 8, Randy calls me. And he said, don't panic. Because he sits and listens to the scanner all the time. But he says, don't panic. He says, but there's been an incident down at V1. Shots have been fired. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Uh-uh, this ain't happening. So I got in my pickup and I run down there. And there were so many people. I could not believe the people that the cops had let in the yellow tape. Because if there was one, there was a dozen. And I asked this one cop to come over to me. And he said, who do you, who are you, what do, what do you want? I said, I need to know where my sister is. I said, my sister was working. He said, well, she's in that ambulance that just went that way. So I got back in my truck and turned my flashers on and we headed up to the hospital and they just unloaded her when my daughter and I got there. And I went barreling through the doors at the emergency room and and I said, where is my sister? And Paul McCracken, who was the police officer that rode up with her, which was wonderful. He was just so good to me. I asked him, I said, where was she shot, Paul? Where was she shot? And he pulled me off into this one little room that was right there at that time. And he said she was shot in the head. And I went down to my knees. And I told him, oh, my God, i got to call my family. i got to call my family. And so I went out because they wouldn't let me in the room yet. And our mom and dad were in Manila. My dad's on a heart transplant list. And my mom and grandma were there. So I called my mom and said, Mama, are you awake? Because by this time, it's almost 9 o'clock. And I said, Mama, are you awake? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, sit up and put your feet on the floor. And I said, there's been an accident, and you need to get to town right away. I said, and it's bad. I said, DeVita's involved. So it takes about an hour an hour and 10 minutes to get from Manila to Rock Springs. So they got there before they put DeVita on the helicopter, thank God. And uh, I went in with my mama, and she talked to DeVita for a bit. We wouldn't let my dad go in because, like I said, he was on a heart transplant list. And then I called. I got had called on her children. She had one daughter that lived with her and a grandbaby. She was raising her grandbaby of her second daughter. And her second daughter lived in Iowa, and her oldest daughter, I believe, was in Casper. So we ended up, I stayed behind while all the rest of the family went to Salt Lake with Tavita and Mama, and I stayed behind to wait for her. And she's one of these children that drag her feet on everything. It took her a whole day and a half to get to Rock Springs and then down to Salt Lake. I was so irritated. But it just... Yeah. Time was of the essence at that point. Yes, it was important. Get here. You don't know if your mom's going to make it through the night. You need to get here. And so we, when all of us went up to the hospital, and I found the nurse. The nurse came out of her room, and I said, okay. I said, don't feed around the bush with me. I need to know how bad it is. And they told me then that they don't think she'd make it. 
And I said, you don't know my sister. I said, don't say that. And I said, you don't know my sister. So she, she was a fighter, but she never went on life support. They never put her on life support. She held her own. It's incredible because I think what the detail that we want to mention here was, so your sister was shot on May 8th, but she did not pass away until almost an entire year later. Right. And they told us we got lucky. And I said, how can you tell a family that they're lucky that she died April 29th, which is 11 months and 21 days after she was shot? And they said, because if she would have waited to die until she, uh, for a year, if they ever found the person that did this, they could not charge him with murder. And I said, but there's no statute of limitation on murder. I know this. And they said, we still couldn't charge him. It could have been something else that did it. Right. I mean, and, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily understand that aspect. I would have to ask no. a lawyer about that. But no, I mean, that doesn't seem like a no. a silver lining or like mm-hmm. accurate. But oh my goodness. And and so one of the questions that I had asked you yesterday was uh, that your sister did she ever regain consciousness during that time? She did once, and I think it was about the twenty third of May, which is. Uh, our other sister's birthday. That's why I remember that date. And it was because she knew my mom and my older sister was there in the room. And they were talking to her. And Mama asked her, she said, Davida, do you know who I am? And she said, you're Mama. Of course I know who you are. Well, open your eyes. And Davida couldn't open her eyes. And she kept telling Mama, I got them open, Mama. I got them open. And then... Brenda asked her, she said, do you know who I am? And she said, yeah, you're Brenda the Brat. And I, she said, uh, yeah, I know where I'm at. And then she went unconscious again. And she was unconscious from that point on. And, the, the, I mean, obviously, what a small gift that she was able to gain consciousness and have that exchange. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned that the detective who was investigating the case was also present and was not able yes. to question your sister. Right. That was Detective Rodriguez. He was in the room, but he couldn't ask her any questions because she went unconscious again. And then from that point on, well, he did, uh, when she went into cardiac arrest in August, he asked if he could come up. And Mama said, why? She's not awake. And so he never did show up at the hospital anyway. And Bountiful. But she went into cardiac arrest in August, and they wanted to take her off life support on the 29th of August. And I said, no, I can't have it happen that day because that's my grandson's birthday, one of my grandsons. And I said, I don't want to remember my grandson's birthday as the day I lost my sister. Right. So we did it on the 30th. We took her off life support. She, like I said, she went into cardiac arrest. And she is, like I said, she was a fighter. And uh, I was, uh, my mom and everybody was at the hospital and doctors explaining to us what had happened if they take her off life support. And uh, I told my sister, my dad was bad, so I told my sister, go ahead and take daddy out of there and take, and my brother, I said, take mama down to the motel. I'll call everybody when it's over. So I sat there with her and I don't know if I'll keep it together again, but uh 
when they shot her, it went in the top of her head. She was executed. She was on her knees with her hands behind her head. And she, they shot her in the head, in the top of the head, and it come out the bottom. It took out sweat glands and or the part of the brain that, that uh, takes care of your sweat glands and stuff. And uh, she was sweating profusely. So I got up, and her stats and everything were starting to drop. And I got up, and I said, okay, baby. I said, it's okay. Go home, walk with Jesus. You put up a good fight. And no sooner got that out of my mouth, and everything went right back to normal. And she stayed that way till she passed away in April. Goodness, what a emotional roller coaster that must have been. Oh, it was, trust me. <laughs> and one of the other things too that I wanted to mention is that so your your sister originally, you know, she went to the local, you know, hospital, you know, when this first happened right. and then was transported to Salt Lake City Hospital. Right. And they moved subsequently two more times. Yes. They moved her from Salt Lake Hospital because there was no hope for her coming out of the coma to Bountiful, which was like a rehab center. And uh, Mama fought to have them move to the Evanston one so that we could go. It's a lot shorter trip and stuff on her and Daddy to go to Evanston from Manila than it was to Bountiful. Mm -hmm. So they finally moved her to Evanston, and that's where she passed. But Mom and I go down every weekend, whether she was in Bountiful or Salt Lake or, or what, because I get my weekends off of work. And we go down there and, and see her and spend time with her. Christmas time, we took a Christmas tree down for her and put her in her room. But we'd sit and we'd talk to her and, and everything all the time. But... It was just, it was hard. It was really hard on my mom and dad and all of us not knowing who did this and why they didn't right. have to shoot her. But right. like I told you yesterday, she wasn't supposed to work that night. She had switched shifts. The little girl that was supposed to work that night called her and asked her, just out of the blue and late, not too long before she had to be there, if she would switch her shifts. And to be just said, yeah, I can switch. And she says, okay, I'll work for you in the morning. You work tonight. So to be just said, that's fine. So to be to work the night shift that night. And I have always believed that she knew. That little girl knew something about the shooting, or that there was going to be a robbery, because it was over two hundred and seventy-eight dollars, which is right. nothing for a person's life. Nothing. Yeah, when you told me that number yesterday, it was yeah. just. My was a my stomach hurt yeah. hearing that number, and so and not just that. So they say so they got the cash. There was no reason, you know, no. obviously for them to to shoot her unless you know obviously like you said potentially she knew who they were and could identify yeah. them. And I so um, that. yeah, and and I one of the other things that I found just like, incredibly peculiar is that it seems so early for an armed robbery to happen yeah. you know, on a Saturday night. You know between. You said eight ten, and you know 
probably 820. And so it just seems so early, yeah. you know, for an armed robbery. And the other aspect, too, that is really fascinating about this case is that this isn't the closest, you know, from the interstate. Like, this, yeah. there are other convenience stores besides that one that they could have hit first or, you know, gone into first. Yeah. But they went into that one. Yeah, that one was just a little, it's a little propane area. And there was a big, uh, not not real big gas station, but a little convenience store and a gas station across the street, Sam's Cafe and Bar, Sam's Motel, Rousey's um, Car Repair, and everything right there, all before you get to the V1 at the light. And it's right there at the light, the first light as you go into Rock Springs off the 107. But I just couldn't figure out why. And then they right. had cameras in there and didn't have them working. Right. That was that was going to be my next point was that, and not just that, but, yeah. you know, this, was, this wasn't, you know, 1970, right? This was 1999, no. you know, where, although, you know, some time ago, 20, you know, 22 years ago, um, you know, it's, it's still recent enough that obviously we had things such as surveillance cameras and things of that nature. Oh, yeah. We're not operating. No. And that, it did promote everybody down on that end of town, the, the uh, Kellys and all of them to get surveillance cameras in their stores and uh, uh, come and go and that they got cameras finally put in their store and stuff. So it finally promoted them to have a little more safety mm-hmm. and stuff over their people because at that time it was 7-Eleven. But they got cameras and everything in there to protect their people. Right. Which I thank God for. And my sister run the laundromat, which was only, I want to say two blocks from the V1. And she even put cameras in her in her laundromat. Right. To make sure her people were okay. One of the other things that we talked about in our last interview, too, was the way that the case was handled. And so kind of out the gate, it seems as though things didn't go the way that they should have in terms of the investigation and no. the efficacy of it. Yeah, well, uh, Detective Rickers, he is such a liar. He lied to my family. He lied to my younger sister, especially that's right underneath me, the third born, because she'd call him. And we tried to, somebody was calling him at least once every two weeks or something there for at first. And uh, she called him because he hadn't called. And uh, and every time anybody called, I forgot to tell you that, anytime anybody called, he wasn't in. And nobody else could tell us anything. So Rhonda called one day and he happened to be in. And she asked him, why haven't you kept in contact with the family? Oh, I do. I keep in contact with the family. In fact, I talked to Rhonda yesterday. And she says, you are a liar. He says, what do you mean I'm a liar? Yeah, I'm Rhonda, and you ain't never talked to me. But he would just barefaced lie to the family. But it was him. Yeah, it was him and an officer Pacheco were the main investigators on that shooting. Paul McCracker was uh, there at there at the station and rode with her from the station all the way to the hospital. He rode in there with her and he, he kept in contact with me asking me how she was doing. But he quit the force because of it. 
he's not there any longer. And he was a good cop. He was a good cop. Yeah, it sounds like he was super invested and yeah. just, you know, you know, very empathetic to the situation. Yeah. He isn't one who really sounded like he was care excuse me, caring, you know. But it was just it wasn't to me the police department just dropped the ball, period. Because DeVito was shot in May and in September, on the twenty sixth of September, I got my pickup stolen down at the Rocky Mountain Noodle. It was parked out back. I didn't leave the keys in it. Well, I did, sort of, but I didn't. I had two sets of keys. I had one on my hip, and then the other set was underneath the seat. And the guard was, the truck was locked, but the door didn't completely shut evidently. And you could kind of lift on it or jerk on it, and it come open, and I didn't realize this. And somebody steals my pickup. And so this cop that comes down to investigate He's asking me all these questions. Well, did it get repossessed? Did this happen to it? Could this have happened? And I said, no, it was stolen. So he said, okay, well, I need to know what all was in there. And I said, well, I had my gun in there. And he goes, why would you carry a gun? And I said, look, my sister was shot in May. They don't know who did it. And I'm not taking any chances. Well, thank God I took it out two days before that. And I forgot about it. But he knew nothing, nothing about my sister's murder or shooting. Right. He said something to the effect of there are no missing or there are no unsolved homicides right now. I've never heard of any unsolved homicides in Rock Springs. I said, we've got your head in the sand because there's more than just my sister, I'm sure. Right. That is so frustrating. I I can't imagine. And so the the most current update that has happened with the case is that 2015, so May 13, 2015, there was a a release of information or request of information released where there was potentially a truck that has that they have going around that you know is uh, an older model that um, it's a GMC pickup, and I, I'll get the details here in a second, but that essentially that they believe that this two-tone late 70s model pickup was used during during the robbery. And so they were asking for information, and from what we understand, nothing has come from that information. No, it, it hasn't. What it is, too, is uh, Riggers has said there was two guys in the pen in Salt Lake that were arrested for a similar robbery. They had robbed someplace and shot the clerk, and they were caught. So he's trying to say those guys were involved, which is a possibility. I mean, maybe so, the good Lord willing, maybe, that those guys were involved, and this is the pickup they were driving. That's how that pickup got introduced. Is because these guys had shot some uh, uh, a clerk or robbed a station. I'm not. I got to take that back. I don't know if she was shot or not, but robbed a station in Salt Lake. And so, have you heard from investigation from from that point on? Have you had any? No. The only thing we know, I have called, and it has gone from first. It was when I talked to the sheriff, and it was uh, Sheriff Grossnickel. I talked to him, and he said he had the case, and he was looking into it, and that's all that was ever said about it. And I said, okay, thank you. 
Well, then the next thing I know, um, my middle daughter, Cindy, God rest her soul, had called, and a friend of hers that's on the police department, a Brenda Baker, said she was going to get it and see what she could do with it. Well, Cindy passed away only two. It was a year ago, September, and oh. she never did find out any more about what had happened. So she was really close to my sister. She uh, she passed away on her birthday in 2021, but she was always really close to Davida. Oh, that's so hard. And there's another kind of connection there with deaths and birthdays, right, between Davida oh. and your dad, right? Yes. Um, my little sister, Davida, daddy, well, we were down in Salt Lake. My dad was on a heart transplant, list, like I said, and he was in the hospital because uh, he had an internal defibrillator and pacemaker, and it kept going off, so they put him in the hospital. Well, the 22nd of July is my little sister's birthday, and our dad told us, go home because there was my mom and me and my older sister. And he says, I need you to go home and put flowers on that good girl's grave. And mom kept telling him, well, I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave you. And he said, no, but I want you to go home and put flowers on Davida, please. So we left and went to go home. We went home, and we are going to gather the rest of the family up. And we got to call on the morning of the 23rd, 3 o'clock in the morning, that daddy had left or had gone. But you go up to the cemetery, Davida passed away April 29th. My dad's birthday is in April. Daddy passed away July 23rd. Davida's birthday is in July. And they're buried right next to each other. <sighs> and her name was Davida, or David with an A. And my oh. dad's was David. I meant to ask that yesterday. And so, uh-huh. so they were definite, definitely, definitely close. Oh, yes. They oh, definitely were connected. Goodness. I One of the things, you know, that I wanted to um, also share, because, you know, if we get into it, I didn't want to lose this detail, but that, you know, Davida, you know, obviously there was reconnecting with her ex-husband at the time, and they were looking at getting back together. But right. then also, too, she was the full-time caretaker raising her one-year-old granddaughter. Right. Yeah, her second daughter couldn't handle her, so she left her with her mom to take care of and attend. And Davida had no problem with that. She loved that little girl. So she was raising her granddaughter. And so she she definitely had a lot of, I mean, and obviously having, you know, uh, some uh, all the sisters and, and your and your brother, too. She had a very, very big family and was incredibly yes. well-loved, and so just what a tragedy that she was taken this way and that there hasn't yeah. been an arrest. No. Well, then she worked not only for the V1, she worked for our sister Brenda part-time with the laundromat. And she delivered papers for Casper Star for years. I think it was eight years at that time that she delivered Casper Star. And I called them and our nephew, my little younger sister that's here in Nevada with me, her son, her second son, or no, no, wait, he was the oldest boy. Her oldest boy was there with staying at Davida's house because he'd take her routes when she'd have to work the early shift at the station. And I called 
Casper Star, letting them know what had happened and that they needed to find somebody else to take Davida's route, that she would not be doing it anymore. And they had the nerve to ask me, well, can't her nephew do it? And I went, lady, what part don't you understand? My nephew lives with my sister. He ain't going to be able to go and deliver, deliver papers now that right. this happened to Davida. They had no compassion whatsoever. A Casper Star didn't. I ain't bought a Casper Star since. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry that they treated it that way. That's super unfortunate. It is. It's just it's sad. The the other part of this too is, you know, we were we were talking and you you know since this has happened in 1989, a lot has happened. And one of the things you mentioned was that your your father has passed away. Um, you had a daughter pass away. Uh, you, you shared that your mom passed away, and then you had an oh you mentioned that your older sister is approaching 70. Is that yes? Yeah, she'll be 70 in June. So, you know, your your family is aging and you're and you're losing, you know, you're losing family members, you know, with as time goes on right. and so to have this case solved would be right. monumental to your family. It, right. It, it's just it'll be closure for everybody and Davida could rest easy and so could mom and daddy and Grammy because they they're suffered right along with the rest of us, especially my mom. You know, you don't you don't uh, people don't understand until you actually you lose a child no matter what the the reasoning for it is the hurt the pain the emptiness that you carry with you when you lose a child and my Cindy lost lost a little boy in 94 she lost her son and it, it that was hard and that's where Davida was she was one of these that used to say, telegraph, telephone, tell Davida. Mm-hmm. Because she'd find out something, she'll tell the rest of the family before anybody else got a chance. So we used to tell her that's who she was. But that's where her and Cindy were close. Yeah. I just hate that, you know, this is, you know, 1999 and it's going on this long that your family, you know, doesn't have that closure, doesn't have that peace. And, you know, I just thank you again so much for telling this really hard story again to me and you know that I really hope that you know the goal is obviously to you know highlight cases but then to make sure you know like that people start asking questions and you know I'll obviously link you know the photo of the the GMC truck and you know and um, you know and everything like that and then like I said I'm reaching out you know reached out again today to see if I can get, um, you know, an update from the Rock Springs. But like I was telling you that uh, I had been approached uh, a couple of months after Davida passed about uh, from cab driver that had said he picked up a fare down at, uh, down somewhere and he took him to Giovanni's and dropped him off. And then about two, three hours later, he got a call from Giovanni's to come and get him because he had blood on his shorts he had no shirt on, no sh- or no, no shirt on, but he had blood all over his shorts, and they wanted him out of there before the cops come to arrest him. And they didn't want any, didn't want a bad name for Giovanni's. Right. But the cops, 
Yeah, and I called Rikers about it, and he said, oh, don't even worry about that. I got that all taken care of. Oh, how frustrating. Yeah. And so there was there was that incident. And then also, too, um, now that you refresh my memory, but one of the things that you mentioned yesterday was that there was, you know, kind of like this area that, like, nobody searched. And, oh, yeah. Like, and so tell me, tell me about that. You know, because right across the street from the V1 is the Sands Motel which is not a very big motel. Then you go back behind the sands and there's Rousey's trailer court, which is not probably got 14 trailers in it. And there's a road that goes right straight through it. And right on the end of the other road and over a little tiny knoll, there's the creek bed. And it goes down over the, or down alongside the railroad tracks and along underneath all the way, well, all the way through town because it's Bitter Creek. So it goes all through town, or Kilpecker, one of them. But it and, goes all the way through town, and they never checked that to see if maybe they got rid of the gun or anything down there. Right. So to your knowledge, it was never searched. Yeah. Right. And then right above V1 is a trailer court with hundreds of uh, trailers up there, and it's uh, not, oh, probably not, not even a quarter of a mile up there, up to the trailer court from V1. But I don't know if they ever went there or not. Right. But they uh, they started questioning the family. You know, anybody. First, it started out anybody that had a nine millimeter gun is what it started out to be. Well, I have so many that they're registered too, but they never come to me. They never ask me. They didn't know I existed. I guess. Linda, is before we get off here, is there any last things that you want to say to listeners about? Your sister's case or your sister? I just wish that some that we could find out who done this tour, and they can get there just because I know the big boy upstairs waiting at the gate for whoever did it and ready to tell him, uh, uh-uh, uh, you need to go south because not with all my family up there because they'd be waiting too. Mm-hmm. But I miss her. I miss her. I really do. I stopped bowling. I never bowled again after she was gone. Because we bowled together that year, and yep, I never picked up a bowling ball since. I am, I'm, can't even imagine. I again, I'm thank you for sharing your your story and you know and being the voice for Davida. And so I think that's so important, you know, to speak the truth for for others. And so thank you for doing that for your sister. Oh, thank you, Renee, for having this. I really, I really appreciate it. It brings me a little hope that somebody else cares, you know? Thank you. I'm I'm glad I can do that for you. Good afternoon, Desiree. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Great. Thank you for joining us. What updates do you have for us from DCI? Sure. So it's been a rather quiet week up until this morning. There were three resolved cases, two from Laramie County and one from Fremont County. Daniel Coleman, age 33, was last seen December 7th in Cheyenne. He's a white male, approximately 6'1", 190 pounds, with green eyes and blonde hair. He's known to have a demon tattoo on his abdomen, along with several other tattoos all over his body from the... Anyone with information, uh, please contact the Cheyenne Police Department. And today we had a, I guess you could say a big breaking case happen This uh, poor mother has been through a lot with her son's case. He's been reported missing in the past, 
And uh, they just now updated DCI because of all the extra attention it's received. Joshua Decker, age 17, was January 6th in Casper. He's a white male, approximately 5'9", 126 pounds, with blue eyes. And he was last seen wearing blue jeans, a gray and teal hat, and cowboy boots, and a black hoodie. He's known to have a scar on his right ankle, and he may possibly go by James Decker. Anyone with information, please contact Casper PD at 307-235-8278. And of course, with all cases, you can contact Wyoming DCI at 307-777-7181. They also have the option to submit tips anonymously on their website. So his mother posted on the group just last night, in the midst of verifying the case, uh, several members of the group and uh, public were speculating that it might be a scam. That's always something to be on the lookout for. I did put a post up on the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook group regarding how to identify spam posts, what things to look for, uh, if it is a real profile, if the person looks like they could be related to this person, if they have any links to Wyoming or the surrounding area. These are all red flags to look for. And uh, it's always uh, it's always sad to see cases turn out like that. Uh, people will take advantage where they can. The good thing is every case on our platform gets verified within 24 hours. People cannot submit posts without them being approved by either myself or Amanda Waldron. So because this post got so much attention and people were speculating, K2 Radio put out a, a statement regarding it, verifying it. And Katie Klozowski, who runs the Missing Persons Database for DCI, went ahead to the public database. Typically, they wait two weeks for entering them into that system. But because of all this questioning around his case, she thought that might help. And I just have to give her a huge shout out. She does so much amazing work over at DCI for missing persons. And anytime we have questions or issues, she's always there to help. Uh, so, you know, we really appreciate DCI and all the work that they do. Definitely. And what a fantastic partnership. I think what I love about this aspect of what we do is that it's such a, because Wyoming is such a, you know, you know, still one of the biggest states, you know, in the, the union, but this most least populated, right? We have almost instant access to the people that we need in order to help with these situations. And so it, there's not a ton of red tape. You know, we have the ability to, you know, call Katie and say, hey, um, can you help with this? And it's not something, you know, where, you know, we're going through like this chain of, you know, people to get to where we need to be. And, you know, just that that small town feel in terms of, DCI being able to help is, I think, so huge. And a lot of people, I don't think, understand that uh, significance of, you know, resources that we have within within the state. Yeah, I agree more. Uh, Katie, everybody over at DCI is uh, surprisingly so approachable. Uh, when I first got into contact with them, very scary, very daunting to think of. And you know, I could reach out anytime I have any issues and they're now, different states run stuff differently, obviously. So for those that aren't aware, DCI essentially is about the state with anything they could uh, need help with. So whether that be testing or like the database, the internet crimes against children, everything essentially is ran through DCI because these smaller local agencies 
can't financially afford to do that because very, very few times do they need that kind of assistance. But when they do, do you assist in anything that they, they may need help with? Absolutely. And and this would be kind of a cool time to mention, you know, I think this was one of our, our really, really early episodes where we talked about this, but DCI, Division of Criminal Investigations, is Wyoming's version of state police, which is what's more commonly used, you know, in the East Coast area, you know, or even down south. And so where they have um, an agency known as state police, where uh, our version of that is Division of Criminal Investigations or DCI. Yeah, and you'll see that a lot more like with uh, uh, smaller populated states and a you know bigger population hustle and bustle happening. So obviously it's not going to run the same way. If they don't have it, they can get it for them. So it's really wonderful for you know missing persons cases or cold cases. Uh, you have these small populated counties. They don't have access or financial ways to get that kind of stuff. And it's just amazing to see them you know help in such a way. Definitely. And, you know, not only only other law enforcement agencies, but obviously, you know, operations such as, you know, Missing People of Wyoming and even our my little podcast, Unsolved Wyoming, they've been incredible. And so, like I said, they're incredibly accessible to those who, you know, are trying to be helpful in, you know, these in these uh, in these situations. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, well, thank you, Desiree. Thank you for joining us. And we'll talk to you next. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I wanted to note that I have reached out to the Rock Springs Police Department twice requesting an interview to ask about the follow-up on this case to see where it currently is today. I have not heard from them, but I did invite them to still get a hold of me and that I would be happy to do a follow-up to this episode. The other thing that has been bothering me, and I talked about it in the episode with Linda, is between 8 and 8.30 seems incredibly early for a convenience store robbery. And I actually looked it up, and according to the Robbery of Convenience Stores, a study done by law enforcement, late evenings to early morning hours carry a greater risk of being targeted. And that is classified, according to them, between the hours of 10 p.m. and 12 a.m. That the majority of robberies, to them, they said about 50% occurred between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m., And that's because the traffic is pretty minimal, but they also did occur two, three days, and that's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which accounted for 60% of the robberies. More than 50% occurred between November and February, which was consistent with the property crimes that occur more frequently during winter months. So that was something to, I think, that I wanted to make sure to point out was when looking at this kind of particular piece, it definitely doesn't make sense. Again, I think that, you know, the primary focus here is telling and sharing DeVita's story, but also if folks know anything, if you remember anything from this time in Rock Springs, Wyoming in 1999, please come forward. This family deserves answers. And the other thing too, if there is any correlation that folks know of between these robberies that were also happening in Idaho and Utah at this time, and there is connection to that late 70s model pickup, please make sure to contact the Rock Springs Police Department. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to sharing an update with you next week. <music>